Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College and the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. In 1854, the abolitionist leader William Lloyd Garrison publicly burned a copy of the U.S. Constitution, calling it a pro-slavery covenant with death and an agreement with hell. Garrison would be grateful for my guest today, historian Paul Finkelman. No one knows more about the pro-slavery history of the Constitution and pro-slavery jurisprudence that flowed from it. Three summers ago, I had the pleasure and privilege of studying some of that history in a National Endowment for the Humanities Summer Institute on the topic in Washington, D.C., which Professor Finkelman co-directed with humanities educator Paul Benson. A distinguished legal historian and currently president of Gratz College outside Philadelphia, Paul has authored and edited a staggering number of books, articles, and essays in legal history, especially concerning slavery and the law. His most recent book, Supreme Injustice, Slavery in the Nation's Highest Court, was published by Harvard University Press in 2018. He's been cited five times by the U.S. Supreme Court, most recently in a 2019 majority opinion by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In addition to his vast and influential scholarship, as well as his frequent speaking engagements, Paul has held numerous distinguished teaching appointments at such institutions at the Albany Law School, the University of Tulsa College of Law, Duke University, and the University of Saskatchewan College of Law, to name just some. He's also been awarded numerous fellowships, for example, from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Philosophical Society, the Library of Congress, Yale and Harvard Universities, and the American Council of Learned Societies. I'm proud to say that he has also been to Gustavus twice as a distinguished guest lecturer in 2019, sponsored by the Hanson Peterson Chair of Liberal Studies, and as a guest professor in two of my courses this past March. And I'm delighted we have this opportunity to converse yet again. Paul, welcome to the podcast, which we will count as your third Gustavus visit. Well, it's a pleasure to be there. I'm sorry that uh, we can't enjoy uh, the greater Twin Cities in person, but this will have to do. I agree. It would be fun. And, you know, we were just chatting before we started recording. The last time you were at Gustavus was literally the day before our respective institutions shut down due to the, the pandemic. Um, but, yeah, at least we can do this remotely. So thanks so much. Let's begin. We're both historians, so we are interested in people's history, of course, histories. Um, how, how did you become a historian? When did you know that is what you wanted to do, wanted to be? That's a that's a complicated question. I went to school in the uh, I, I entered college in the six, late sixties at a time when um, there was great ferment at universities about civil rights, about the Vietnam War, um, at, about the beginnings of the environmental movement. Um, I um, was interested in social protest since I was involved in many marches and demonstrations. Uh, I inhaled my share of tear gas. And at the same time, I was, I, I became interested in why do some social movements work and others don't work. And so I, I studied past social change as an undergraduate. And um, I, I looked at you know, Socialist Party and the Communist Party and uh, various other similar events. And, and I thought that in many respects, they were both not about America. That is, uh, you know, I think the Communist Party was singularly uh, un-American, not in the way the House Committee on Un-American Activities did it, thought about it. That is, but simply that... It never understood what America was all about. Mm. Um, I felt that that uh, struggles of labor unions were important for American history, but they were always about um, about what the workers wanted for themselves. And then I began to study the anti-slavery movement. And what struck me about anti-slavery is that it was, for the most part, 
a movement populated by people who had never been slaves, who were for the most part white, and they were concerned about slavery because it was morally unjust. They were concerned about an institution that was a, uh, a cancer on American society. And it struck me that abolitionists were, were people who were worth knowing more about. So I began to study abolitionists, and that led me to the study of slavery. And um, I concluded, you know, in my, while I was in college, that slavery was really at the center of American life. Uh, it had been not merely an institution that died out in 1865, but lives on in segregation, lives on in racial attitudes, and lives on in our Constitution. So that led me ultimately to go to graduate school to become a historian. I wrote a dissertation on slavery and the law. And I have since written a lot and lectured a lot and thought a lot about the problem of slavery in American culture. Um, I've written about many other things as well because, you know, history is, as some people have put it, a seamless web. You go from one event, one subject, one problem to another. And the more you study, the more you realize how little you know. So right. I've written about uh, race discrimination against Asian Americans. I've written about uh, discrimination uh, against American Jews. I've written about um, the civil rights movement. Uh, and uh, I continue to be interested in what makes America what it is. That is the ultimate great contradiction between a society which says we hold truths to be self-evident that we're all created equal and a society which countenanced segregation, discrimination long after slavery was over. And so that, that's been my trajectory. And on the side, I've done other things. I've written on baseball and law, for example, because um, I, although I'm trained as a historian, I ended up teaching in law schools for a variety of reasons. And um, so I'm interested in how law affects society. I think things like slavery and race are the ultimate tests of who we are as a people. I agree. And to, to back up just a little bit, you, you did your PhD at the University of Chicago, where if I'm remembering correctly, you worked with the, the legendary uh, historian John Hope Franklin. Is that right? I did. I worked with John Hope Franklin, who is the, I, I would say, the most prominent African-American scholar of the last half of the 20th century, and whose book, From Slavery to Freedom, uh, which is still in print after its first being published in 1947, really set the stage for the study of African-American history. And I also worked with Stanley Katz, who was a historian teaching in the law school uh, and is one of the great legal historians in the United States and is now uh, at Princeton, uh, went on to be at the Woodrow History Department and the Woodrow Wilson School of Princeton. So I had, had the advantage of having two incredibly important and uh, mentors who were really in, in quite different fields. Uh, but Chicago is a place where you work with lots of other people as well. So I took courses in geography. I took courses. I worked with political scientists. I took mm -hmm. courses with them. Um, and I took a lot of classes in the law school. And when did you start to focus on the Constitution itself as a, as a, and its pro-slavery dimensions? Well, my, my dissertation was a study of what happened when Southerners brought their slaves into Northern states. Now, um, I don't want to get too involved in technical law, but basically the issue would be this. If slavery is created by the local law of a local state, does the person remain a slave if you bring the person to a place where slavery no longer exists? 
or does the slave become free? Um, I suppose you could think about it in terms of modern property law, um, because of course, under the legal system, slaves were property. And here, here might be an example. Uh, I, I'm hesitant to use this example too much because it's, it's, it kind of diminishes the importance of the human element of slavery. That is, these were human beings who were treated this way. Right. But let's suppose you um, buy some marijuana in one of the many states where marijuana is now legal. And then you travel to a state where marijuana is not legal. Obviously, um, the marijuana that's with you will be taken away from you, confiscated, because you can't have it in this state, even though it's legal in the state that you came from. Uh, now, in a sense, what happened with slaves is they might be brought to free states, and as a result of coming to a free state, they would in fact themselves become free under the state law. So this is the kind of issue that I studied to write my dissertation. There were many, many cases on this because many Southerners traveled uh, into Northern states with their slaves. Uh, these cases ended up in courts. They ended up in um, with legislation being passed. And so in that sense, from my dissertation on, I was at least thinking about the Constitution and thinking about the way in which the Constitution operates. Um, and and in order to do this, of course, I looked at the debates on the Constitutional Convention and read the debates and read about the way in which slavery shaped the writing of the Constitution. Sometime after that, um, in 1986, um, after I'd been out, out of graduate school uh, for a decade, I was asked to write an essay on slavery at the Constitutional Convention for a book uh, called Beyond Confederation, which was a collection of essays, book chapters, about the creation of the U.S. Constitution. And so I wrote a an article which I called Making a Covenant with Death, which is why Garrison would like me, in yeah. which I wrote about how uh, the Constitution um, essentially made a series, contained many, many um, compromises over slavery, all of which protected slavery and embedded slavery in our constitutional order. Uh, and since then, I've just kept writing on this subject, written about Supreme Court justices, written about Supreme Court cases, written about um, state laws, um, written about the political issues, written about the fugitive slave law. Uh, I ended up writing a biography of Millard Fillmore, who uh, was the president who signed the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 into law. Right. So I just keep uh, it's writing about this because it's endlessly interesting. And more than that, I think it's endlessly important for understanding who we are as Americans, what our country is all about. I want to come back to that latter point in a bit, why it's important. But first, um, let's stipulate that the issue you were, you were studying in, in graduate school is really the one that nagged at and ultimately tore apart the Union. If, if uh, enslaved people come into a free state, are they still uh, slaves? But also um, that, the, that the Constitution itself is, it's, our Constitution is peculiar, right? It never mentions the word slave or slavery or enslavement, the word, those words. And yet there is a, a, a fugitive slave clause built into it. And there are some other ways, of course, many ways, really, as you've studied and pointed out, uh, in which the Constitution is a pro-slavery document. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about some of those Wait, sure. I think still most Americans don't really understand the extent to which the Constitution was absolutely saturated with slavery without mentioning it by name. Right. So when the convention debates what's going to go into the Constitution, the delegates talk about Negroes and they talk about slaves 
And they use the term interchangeably, which is interesting because, of course, by this time, there are a fair number of free blacks living in the north. And there are a few free blacks living in the south. So all black people are not slaves. But the convention delegates use the term Negro and slave interchangeably. And they talk about the about slavery in a variety of ways. And Southerners insist on counting slaves for purposes of representation. Um, remember, under the Articles of Confederation, which the Constitution will replace, uh, representation is based on states. Each state has the same number of representatives. But the... Um, but the new constitution representation will be based on population. And so the question is, do you count slaves as part of the population? Um, curiously, and again, this is, it's also very complicated because it's all interwoven. But let me back up for a couple of years. During the revolution under the Articles of Confederation, the states were expected to contribute money to support the national government which meant to support George Washington's army in the field. And the states were expected to make contributions based on the population of each state. And the southern states insisted that you could not count slaves for purposes of making contributions, because as they said, slaves are not persons under the law, they are property. And what we're doing is basing taxation based on people, and slaves in this context are not people. Uh, now, they're not saying that slaves aren't really human beings. They know better than that. Uh, right. And, 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 and they're certainly not. Um, but what they're saying is in a political context, in an economic context, slaves are not persons, they're property. And so in the end... Virginia's contribution or North Carolina's contribution to support of the new government was based entirely on its free population. Fine. Now comes the Constitutional Convention, and you're going to base representation on the number of people in the state. And suddenly the Southerners say, well, of course, slaves are people, and we have to count them for purposes of representation. Uh, they, they're, they're completely dishonest, disingenuous, lying, hypocritical, because for years they have been saying that slaves aren't people within a political context, and therefore they shouldn't be counted for taxation. And now they turn around and say, you absolutely have to count our slaves for purposes of representation. <laughs> In the end, uh, everybody agrees to a compromise known as the three-fifths compromise, which says that you'll count slaves on the basis of three-fifths of the population. So if you have um, a thousand slaves, it'll only count to 600 people for purposes of representation. Okay. So in Article 1 of the Constitution, you get the three-fifths clause. Now, it doesn't say we're going to count the three-fifths of the, of the slaves. What the clause says is, and I'll, I'll read it to you, it says, representation and direct, representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states um, according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, which would be an apprentice or an indentured servant who were, of course, white and ultimately free. So adding to the whole number of free persons, three-fifths of all other persons. I've cut out a couple of words here. I don't want to read too much. But basically, the slaves are the three-fifths of all other persons. But they don't say the slaves because they don't want the American public to be aware of just how pro-slavery all this is. So they hide the word. Uh, because because by by saying the word, you're going to expose the Constitution and its many pro-slavery provisions. Hmm. Similarly, 
there's a clause which allows the African slave trade to continue till at least 1808. Now, this is important to understand. The new constitution gives Congress the power to regulate international trade. Under this power, Congress could end the African slave trade because it's international trade. Everybody understands that. But the delegates from South Carolina, Georgia, and North Carolina say, look, we have to be able to import more slaves. And we know that the Congress might vote to ban the African slave trade. So we insist that there be a protection against that. And so how do they do it? With the following clause, the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808. They don't say the slave trade can't be prohibited. They call it the migration or importation of such persons. Again, trying to hide what they're doing. In order the to slave to law says the same thing. Persons yeah. owing service or labor will be right. returned. Nor, nor does that nor does that slave trade clause say anything about an, in, an internal slave trade, right? I mean, nothing there. Well, the inter, the internal slave trade is not there. Uh, because nobody expects Congress to regulate the internal slave trade. Right. We're talking about the the external slave trade, the importation from other countries. What about the Electoral College, which I was taught long ago, uh, was really about stemming a populist you know, impulse, a democratic small d impulse, but you've argued that, in fact, that's that's not really the case, that really you, you, we can't understand the Electoral College, which we still have, of course, and which has decided elections, including the 20 presidential elections in 2016. We can't understand that apart from uh, its pro-slavery uh, functions or implications. Could you say a little bit about that? Sure. So so when they're deciding to ch how they're going to choose the president, James Madison says in the debates that the most appropriate thing would be for the people to elect the president. And then he says, but we can't do this because our Negroes, that is our slaves, would have no influence in the election of the president because obviously the slaves don't vote. Remember, you're counting slaves for representation. You're not saying that slaves can vote. Okay? Right. So um, so Madison and a couple of the other delegates come up with this clever idea that we will have presidential electors, which will essentially represent the slaves, the states, I'm sorry, represent the states. And the presidential electors will be allocated by the number of representatives that each state has in Congress, plus their two senators. And in doing this, of course, the presidential electors are going to be based in part on the three-fifths clause. Hmm. So, yes, the, the southern states get extra presidential electors because of counting slaves for purposes of representation. And, uh, and, and that if, that gets Thomas Jefferson elected president. In right. Without the Electoral College, uh, Adams would have been re-elected. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to head, the election of 1800. Uh, what, what didn't the uh, did the Federalists call him the Negro president or something, referring not only to the... Yeah, the, so, so, the so one person wrote a book about... about uh, Jefferson and they called him the Negro president because he was effectively elected by votes from uh, uh, electoral votes created by counting slaves. Yeah. Well, we still have that electoral college. That's another We do, and it comes back to haunt us in every election. And we've had yeah. a number of elections, not just 2016, in which the person who won the most votes did not get elected president. 
Yeah, and it's a direct legacy of of, 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 the, of slavery. It's a and direct the, legacy of slavery. And nobody wants to talk about this. Right. Because if you talk about this, then the Electoral College is an embarrassment. Yes. Right. Um, and, and then it presumably goes goes away or could be made to go away more yeah. easily. Yeah. The um, now what 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 about this argument? I'm thinking of Gary Nash's book on on blacks and the revolution, but the others have made it too. That um, look, the 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 founders, the so-called founders, of the Constitutional Convention of Philadelphia, really they really had no choice. Those who you know didn't want to compromise or maybe would rather not have compromised with with southern southern delegates really had no choice. I mean, South Carolina is going to walk out of the convention, right? Georgia. Is, is there, I mean, how, maybe it was theoretically possible to avoid a compromise with slavery in the constitution, but was it, was it realistic? What is your, what is your sense of that? Well, I think that there are a couple of answers to that. One is compromises are about a give and take. So late in the Constitutional Convention, when the delegates from the Deep South ask for what becomes the Fugitive Slave Clause, which says, no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall in consequence of any law or regulation therein be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party whom such service or labor may be due. Notice again, not using the word slave. Right. Um, there's no compromise here. The, the northern states don't ask for a quid pro quo. There is nothing. The South doesn't give the, the free states anything. Um, the, um, for, for example, the free states said, look, um, the, the free states could have said, for example, um, all right, we'll we'll help you return your fugitive slaves, uh, but they have to have a jury trial before before we're sending anybody back to slavery because we want to make sure it's it's the right person. You know, we don't want you to just come here and grab any free black that you happen to see in our neighborhood and and seize them as slaves. Uh, th th there has to be a process here, or they could have said, you know, um, sure. You can come get your fugitive slaves, but when free blacks from from Pennsylvania visit Virginia, you have to give them the same rights to give free white people from Pennsylvania, free white people from Virginia. You can't discriminate against our citizens if you expect us to help you keep track of your runaway slaves. Or, alternatively, the northern delegates could have said, look, we are not going to be in the business of taking care of your property for you. If you can't keep track of your slaves, it's not our fault. And no, you can't come tromping into Pennsylvania and just grabbing people off the streets. Um, they didn't do any of these things. None of the none of these issues were raised in any way, and the fugitive slave law. Clauses is added to the Constitution and later leads to two federal statutes enforcing it. The slave trade provision. Um, why 1800? Why 1808? Uh, originally, by the way, the slave trade provision is, is for is 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 supposed to expire in 1800, and then at the last minute they say let's make it 20 years, which would be 1808. Well, why? Extended another eight years. If you need slaves, get them now. You've got eight years to get them, and then it's over. Uh, the three-fifths clause, why not 50%? Um, uh, in other words, these are, these are discussions that could have taken place and didn't. But this is the other issue. If you're going to accept that, well, there was no choice but to make this covenant with death, this agreement in hell, 
then let's at least acknowledge it. Let's put it out there. Let's talk about it. Let's be honest about it. Let's say what we're doing and not try to hide it from the American people. Or what if you call South Carolina's bluff? What if you say to South Carolina, we're not banning the African slave trade in the Constitution. There's nothing here that says the African slave trade has to end. We're simply not going to give it special protection. There is no other import-export business that gets a special clause in the Constitution. You don't get any special privileges. If you want to import slaves, you can import them. And if Congress wants to ban it, then it will be banned. Um, And if South Carolina says, well, we're not going to join the new Constitution, you know, so what? So be it. So be it. So so let's suppose, you know, think about this for a moment. Let's suppose that Georgia and South Carolina don't ratify the Constitution. And so you have a, a country of 11 states, um, North, South Carolina and Georgia are there in the deep south. Spanish Florida is right next door. There are very strong Native American nations in western uh, Georgia and in parts of South Carolina. Um, there's the Spanish in Florida. There's the British in the Caribbean. If the British decide to reinvade Charleston and take it back, the U.S. isn't going to run in and protect them. Let them go it alone. See how long they last. Uh, you know, you know. one of the clauses that I didn't mention, there are two places in the Constitution where the national government promises to suppress insurrections. Well, what do you think an insurrection is if you're a slave owner? Right, it's a slave rebellion, slave revolt. All right, so you know, okay, so don't don't sign the Constitution, and when your slaves revolt, don't expect the U.S. Army or the militia from the next state over to come by and protect you, because we won't. You don't want to be in. Fine, you're not in. So why wasn't why wasn't there more discussion? Why weren't these issues raised? And why why didn't why wasn't South Carolina's bluff called? I mean, was it was it just sort of moral cowardice on the part of Northern delegates to the convention? Part of it is, I think, moral cowardice. I think part of it is um, a lack of moral compass. That is to say, the Northern delegates simply don't think that this is worth the effort. Mm -hmm. Part of it is perhaps a a just a lack of interest. You know, Uh, the Northern. uh, So during the debate over the Commerce Clause, which is very important to Northern states because they want Congress to regulate interstate commerce. Um, All of the southern states, except South Carolina, vote no on the Commerce Clause. Now, the Commerce Clause would have passed the convention without (coughs) the five deep south states um, supporting it. Uh, But South Carolina supports it, and South Carolina says, we're supporting it because you supported our interests yesterday, which was by passing the slave trade clause. So so here's, here's the story. They're basically saying we're willing to sell out African people to get our economic interests taken care of. Um, We should at least understand 
that that's the cost of union. And maybe it was a cost too high to pay. Um, during the ratification debates over whether or not to have a have the Constitution ratified, a um, three anti-federalists in Massachusetts complained that under this Constitution, they would be forced to protect slavery in the South, that they would have to go to war to suppress slave rebellions. Um, now, it turned out they don't end up having to go to war to suppress slave rebellions. They have to go to war to suppress a rebellion of slave owners. But clearly, these people understand that the cost of this constitution is very high. And that, that answers a question I had. So there were at least some, maybe just a few voices of, of dissent, if you will. I mean, people who spoke up uh, at, the, at the convention. There, there are people who speak up at the convention, and there are also people who speak up during the debates over ratification in the states. Yes. A absolutely. Um, but they lose. Right. And by the way, when the Southern delegates come back to the, conven from the convention, they all say, we have a really great deal. This is really terrific. You should support. Uh, you should support this constitution because it's going to protect slavery. They understand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, uh, at, uh, J J um, Patrick Henry, who hates the constitution, right? Uh, he he'll make any argument he can think of to end uh, to prevent Virginia from ratifying the constitution, and he says. Um, you know, under this constitution, they're going to come and take your slaves from you. And Edmund Randolph, who'd been at the convention and refused to sign the constitution, but later supports it. Edmund Randolph says, show me the clause at the and the constitution where it threatens slavery. And James Madison says, look at the fugitive slave clause. We have a right to recover our runaway slaves, which is not a right we currently have under the Articles of Confederation. So they get it that they've got a very good deal. Yeah. And then out of this comes not, not only the union, which is, you know, will become half slave, half free, but, but also this, this pro-slavery jurisprudence that, that is evident in the Supreme Court. And that's the subject of your most recent uh, book, which is which I highly recommend, really a great read, quite interesting, and you 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 reveal a, a fair amount in that book about Justice Marshall, who's held up as this this, this paragon of, of justice, and and his particular pro slavery jurisprudence, but also his his buying and selling of slaves. Could you talk a little yeah. bit about that? So so one of the things that the U.S. has has done is to hide our past, to, to, to live in a kind of a denial about the relationship of slavery to the creation of the United States. Um, you know, uh, some years ago, when I was a young college professor, I went to Monticello, the home of Thomas Jefferson, and I, and I was taking the tour of Monticello, and I asked the guide um, where, the, um, where the slaves lived in relationship to the big house at Monticello. And the guide started yelling at me, sure. saying, why are you asking this? Are you, just, are you trying to destroy the reputation of a great man? Um, and... Uh, you know, I didn't ask him about uh, Jefferson's relationship with his own slave, Sally Evans. Uh, I didn't ask him about Jefferson owning his own relatives. I simply asked the question, um, you know, where did, the, where did the slaves live in relationship to this house? 
and I think just to pick, pick up on what you said, I think at that point they weren't even using the word slaves. They're using the word servants or something like that. Well, they would have preferred if I used the word servant, absolutely. They, they would have much preferred the word servant um, because we don't want to talk about Thomas Jefferson and slavery. Now, for, for a, almost two centuries, Thomas Jefferson and and the um, and 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 the um, people who ran Monticello adamantly denied that Thomas Jefferson had any relationship with Sally Hemings or that Sally's children were his children. Um, they did this in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Um, but Sally Hemings was the half sister of Jefferson's wife. Everybody admitted that. That is, uh, a man named John Wales had a family with Mrs. Wales, and he also had a family with uh, Betty Hemings, his slave. And Sally Hemings was John Wales's daughter, and Thomas Jefferson's wife. Martha Wales was also John Wales' daughter. So Sally Hemings was the half-sister-in-law of Thomas Jefferson. He, she was his late wife's half-sister. So even, even if you said, well, we don't know if Jefferson was the father of her children, you certainly know that Jefferson is the uncle of her children. They are his nieces and nephews. And the Jefferson family always said, Thomas didn't father these children. Jefferson's nephews did. So here we have children who are the blood nephews of Jefferson's late wife. And they are the blood great nephews of Thomas Jefferson through his own nephews. So what does it say about a man who owns his nieces and nephews? even if you don't want to admit that there is children. What does that say about him morally? What does it say about America morally? What does it say about a man who says we're all created equal? Right. Um, we lived in denial. The country lived in denial on this. Uh, and by the way, when you went to Jefferson's house, they never mentioned the word slaves. They talked about the, um, the servants. The yes, house service. Yes, okay. exactly. So now let's talk about his cousin, John Marshall. Yeah. Uh, Marshall is, is a distant cousin of Tom Jefferson. Every biography of John Marshall, until I wrote my recent book, all said the same thing, that he owned a small number of house servants, a, a dozen house servants, they would say, in Richmond. And that he was not economically involved in slavery. He, you know, didn't buy people. He didn't sell people. He just had these dozen house servants. Well, actually, a dozen house servants is, is a tremendous investment in slaves. That would be worth a couple million dollars today. Hmm. But aside from that, um, I wrote a book on the Supreme Court and slavery, and I started looking at Marshall's will. And in his will, Marshall designates, I give these slaves to this son and these slaves to this son, and I give the slaves over here to, for my nephew to hold in trust for my daughter. And I did a little census work, and it turns out that Marshall owns about 100 50 slaves. Huge. Um, he didn't inherit them like Jefferson. He was given one slave as a wedding present from his father. And he um, later got a few more slaves when his father moved to West Virginia and didn't need um, moved to Kentucky, I'm sorry, and didn't want to take all the slaves with him. But otherwise, um, Marshall bought these slaves. His own record books 
show him buying one slave after another, constantly buying slaves. Um, and what's fascinating is, is the, the person who edited the John Marshall papers never seemed to notice that Marshall was buying all these slaves because when he wrote a biography of Marshall, he didn't, um, he didn't notice that Marshall had all these slaves. Again, part of the denial. It's the denial. Um, Go ahead. When I was writing my book, I was talking to one scholar uh, about what I had found. And the scholar said, are you just trying to destroy the reputation of a great man? Hmm. And I said, no, actually, I'm trying to understand the great man. Hmm. Great answer. <laughs> And that, that leads to my next question, which is that you, you, your point in this in, in your most recent book isn't that this is sort of incidental, but that it is central to understanding Marshall's jurisprudence and that the pro-slavery constitution is central to understanding even the jurisprudence of northern Supreme Court jurists who didn't own slaves and never trafficked in slaves. You say a little bit about that. I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't fully hear you, the connection. Could you repeat your question again? Yes. The, you know, in, in, in your most recent book, your point isn't simply that, you know, look, I look at what I found Marshall trafficked in a great number of uh, slaves, but that his ownership, his buying and selling of slaves, the fact that he was a slaveholder influenced his jurisprudence as a Supreme Court justice and that the pro-slavery constitution influenced the jurisprudence of even even justices on the court, uh, like Story of, of Massachusetts, who who had nothing to do with slavery directly. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So, so again, 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 this is in part the denial. So if you read the um, read the biographies of Marshall, um, they say things like he heard very few cases involving slavery. Uh, one one author said that he heard relatively few cases involving freedom claims by slaves. Um, actually, he heard 14 cases while chief justice, which is almost one every other year. Uh, now, is that relatively few or relatively many, given how difficult it would be for a slave to actually get a case before the Supreme Court? So maybe, in fact, he heard relatively many. But the bottom line is, whenever Marshall wrote an opinion in a case involving a claim of freedom, the slave lost. Even if in the lower court, a jury of 12 white men had concluded that the, this slave was entitled to be free. So, That's amazing. I, I, so I would say that Marshall has a jurisprudence that is overwhelmingly pro-slavery. You'd have to read the whole book to get the full details. But right. it's, again, it, it's there and nobody, nobody wants to talk about it because it doesn't fit with the, with, with, with the, with the image we want to have of it. Another, another, um, another Marshall biographer wrote that, that, that Marshall um, um, that Marshall decided the cases he decided because he didn't want to disturb federalism. Okay? Right. That he, that he had to, that he had to, didn't want to cause a crisis within the union. In the union, yeah. Yeah. The only problem with that is is most of Marshall's freedom cases are heard before 1820 when there is no national debate over slavery. And in the 1830s, when Marshall is still chief justice and there are cases involving freedom, which Marshall does not decide, but somebody else decides because they're decided in favor of freedom. This is at a time 
when in fact there is a crisis in the union. So, so the other members of the court, including two justices from slave states, write opinions freeing the slaves on the grounds that they're entitled to their freedom under the law, that they're not technically legally slaves. And, um, and this is not about preventing a crisis in the union because there is no crisis in the union at this time. Because they're not, I'm sorry, because in the 1830s, they're not worried about the crisis in the union. They're simply saying that, that, that these slaves are entitled to their freedom and we're going to decide that way. So, 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 so all of the explanations for Marshall are simply, are simply dishonest. They, they fall apart in the face of the evidence, which, which other scholars have not wanted to confront as, as head on as, as you have. What about, just a, a little bit of a tangent here, what about a, a justice like Joseph Story from, from Massachusetts, right? I mean, who's, who's also engaged in, 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 in pro-slavery jurisprudence. Can you That's give right. So Story's fascinating. Early in his career, he is pretty anti-slavery. And he writes an opinion in a lower court case that is one of the most anti-slavery opinions ever written by a federal judge. Later in his career, and then in the 1830s, he writes his great treatise on the um, on the Constitution, commentaries on the Constitution. And in commentaries on the Constitution, Story says that the Fugitive Slave Clause was a gift that the North gave the South. And in fact, that's true because there's no quid pro quo. And he says, this shows that the North respected Southern institutions. And this shows that the North was concerned about protecting Southern, Southern culture. Now, Story is saying this in the 1830s because it is the beginning of a crisis in the Union. And Story's trying to make the argument that, hey, you Southerners, you should love the Constitution. Then in 1842, he decides a fugitive slave case in which he says that the fugitive slave clause was an absolutely essential compromise of the Constitution. And without this clause, the Constitution could never have been ratified. So it goes from being a gift of the Northerners to the Southerners and now has become a central compromise. Well, in fact, it's not a central compromise. There's almost no debate over it. Story's mm -hmm. lying. And he's lying because he's trying to protect his incredibly pro-slavery opinion, which essentially says that Southern slave catchers can go into any northern state and grab any person they want to claim as a slave and bring that person back to the south as a slave without any court even determining whether in fact the person's a slave or not talk about a gift <laughs> yes why, what explains that change what explains that why, why 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 that change in story if it was a change um i think it's two things. One is that the story is worried about the union. And he feels that the only way to protect the union is to give the South everything it wants, which means he's lost his moral compass. But the other is I don't think story really cares one way or the other about what happens to black people. Mm. Racism. You know, um, Racism and just racial insensitivity. It's a terrific book, which I urge everyone to read, uh, accessible, even if you're not a legal <laughs> legal historian. And the cases are fat. I mean, the, 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 the individual story. Who else do you do? You do Story, Marshall, and... Uh, and Tawny, who wrote the Dred Scott decision. Dred Scott, right. Just, just terrific. You know, we've well, been talking... Yeah, my pleasure. I loved reading it. You've, you've been talking about um, denial, the denial of history, especially the, the, the slave, the history of slavery in this country. And I wonder, 
um, if we could turn now to the, the, the monuments controversy that's that's back in the news, especially since the murder of George Floyd here in Minneapolis uh, in, in May. Thoughts about that as a historian? Um, I mean, <laughs> should 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 all monuments of Jefferson to Jefferson come down? For example, or I'm also thinking of the one to Lincoln uh, in in D.C. with the with the kneeling slave, which some want to take down. Well. well about, should we care so much about what comes down or care more about what goes up? Or Go ahead. Well, I think the monuments are, are complicated. Um, one thing to think about is, is we build monuments to honor people and to memorialize events. And in the history of most societies, monuments go up and monuments come down. Uh, the Nazis built lots of monuments to Nazis. They're all gone, right? Right. Uh, if you'd gone to Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia in 1980, you would have found statues of Stalin and Lenin. They're all gone. Leningrad is no longer called Leningrad, remember? Right. It used to be called St. Petersburg, and then it became Leningrad, and now it's back to St. Petersburg. Well, the Russians were perfectly capable of changing the name of a, of a, of a city twice, right? Hmm. Um, there are no monuments to Napoleon that I know of in France. Nobody, right. nobody think, wishes for the good old days when Napoleon tried to conquer the world and, you know, slaughtered a huge population percentage of the male population of France in the process. Right. Or to King George in our own case, our own revolution. Yeah. yeah. A number of monuments to, right. to, to King George um, came down. So there's nothing sacred about a monument. Monuments memorialize. You know, we change the name of streets all the time. We change the name of towns. Uh, you know, um, during World War One, some towns with German names suddenly became Pershing instead of, um, uh, you know, Bismarck or something like that, right? So, so, in fact, the British royal family changed its name. You know, it used to be the House of Hanover because, because you know, the current Queen Elizabeth is a direct descendant of the um, of, of the Hanover family, right? But during World War One, they changed the name of the royal family from Hanover to Windsor because they didn't want to be associated with the enemy, which was German. So countries change names all the time. Um, you know, the the military has finally woken up to the fact that it is a little weird to have forts named for people who killed American soldiers who who in some cases killed captured American soldiers. You know, the Confederate Generals were fighting against the United States. They weren't yeah, fighting yeah, for the United States. States. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's bizarre that the, the statues in Statuary Hall that some finally being removed. It's crazy, right? What other country does that honors traitors? Honors traitors. <laughs> yeah. So Civil War monuments are really easy. Um, yeah. I think monuments to to presidents. Are more complicated. Um, Thomas Jefferson did many important things in the United States. Thomas Jefferson was president for eight years. He um, he accomplished a great deal. He wrote the Declaration of Independence. Um, one can make strong arguments for honoring Thomas Jefferson in many ways. Um, at the same time, he did everything in his power to preserve and protect slavery. He was 
the owner of slaves and the protector of slave slavery, and he supported slavery. He spread sla helped spread slavery across the continent. Um, and so he's a very complicated individual. Um, I'm not sure I'd tear the Jefferson Memorial down, but I might redo the inside mm. to say, you know, we memorialize this piece of Jefferson and we condemn this piece. Because right, monuments so, can also be teaching moments. Yes, exactly. So that the, the, the issue isn't to, to keep them up or tear them down, but we could even, right, revive. The, the, the issue, no, I think for some it is. I have no problem for some it is, but I mean for, with, for, with, with tearing down monuments to Jefferson Davis. Right. was a, a yeah. traitor and by, any, by any definition of the term. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I think what you're suggesting is there's not one sort of blanket rule or, or we need to think about who to whom the monument is when it went up. And but it's mm -hmm. possible to have a monument that is offensive in some ways, but also stays and gets revised or added to, um, as you just suggested, with with respect to Jefferson, the Jefferson Monument, Jefferson Memorial. Mm -hmm. well, I could talk forever about these issues, which I find fascinating, um, and you're you're so so knowledgeable about them. But I do want to conclude on a slightly different note, and that is, of course, uh, you know, maybe most listeners don't know that you were an expert witness in the Barry Bonds home run ball. Uh, I think was it a seventy third home run? Seventy third home run ball, which yeah. is the most yeah. home runs ever hit by a player in a single season. Right. And you wound up or found yourself as an expert witness because the ownership of that ball was contested. And I've just right. always found it fascinating how you how you approached um, approached your position as the expert witness in that case. So what did you what did you argue? OK, so so first set the stage. It's the last game of the season. Barry Bonds hits his he had already cast Mark McGuire's record of 70 home runs in one season. And now he has passed 71, 72 on the last day of the season. Uh, by the way, the Giants are no longer the pennant race. Uh, so the only reason to go to the game on the last day is to see if Barry Bonds is going to hit another home run. And he does. He hits number 73. It gets into the, into the, hit into the stands. It's caught by a guy named Alex Popoff, who's a big Barry Bonds and San Francisco Giants fan. Uh, Popoff um, catches the ball, and then he's immediately knocked down by about a dozen people. He's effectively mugged in the stands. I, I think there's no other way to describe it. It's like a mugging. It's and, on video. It's all on video. Yeah, and and... It's all caught on, on TV news camera. And somebody else ends up with the ball. And so Popov sues to get the ball back. In the meanwhile, I had written an article uh, for a law review on why you own a home run ball if you catch it. Now, for me, this is sort of an intellectual an interesting intellectual problem, okay? The home team owns the baseball. So why is it that when I'm at a baseball game and I catch a ball, why do I get to keep that ball? Why don't I just give it back to its owner? If I'm at a basketball game and the ball bounces into the stands, I don't get to if I'm at a football game and the ball gets kicked into the stands, I don't get to keep it. So why do I get to keep it if it's a baseball? I thought this was an interesting intellectual problem. And so I wrote an article on why you own a home run ball if you catch it. Uh, when Bonds' ball was hit, it was caught, when there was a controversy immediately emerges, I got called by ESPN to give them a comment. And my basic comment was, is when the guy caught the ball, it became his ball, he owns it. And if somebody else has it, he's in possession of stolen property. Hmm. 
And I ended up being the expert witness in the case. It was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, it's not every day that you get to um, to do something like this. Uh, more importantly, I was also the expert witness against Chief Justice Roy Moore in his um, the Ten Commandments, in the lawsuit over the giant Ten Commandments monument that no, he put up in the rotunda of the Supreme Court building of, of Alabama. And, well, before, um, I want to ask you about that. Before we get to that quickly, what, so what was the outcome in the bonds? What, what did the judge well, do? The judge began the case by saying that um, he believed that, that, that he began the case by saying that he'd never been to a baseball game, never played baseball, and so he really doesn't know you know, much about this problem. Uh, I thought the judge should have recused himself on incompetence right there. <laughs> I thought I thought he should have said, hey, I'm not competent to hear the case. But he did hear the case, and in what I consider to be a completely astounding ruling, <laughs> he decided that they should sell the ball and divide it between two people, the guy who caught it and the guy who ended up. I thought it was a horrendous decision because it's essentially countenancing violence in the baseball stadium. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and, and then, you know, this was not, this is not a case of, uh, you know, the, the, the fans, the fans shouldn't, um, you know, be um, be fighting with each other, and the baseball stadiums should not be encouraging fans fighting with each other. Agree. And then in the Roy Moore case, which I did want to ask you about, tell us a little bit about that. Your 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 position in that case. Well, that's a much, in some ways, a, a pretty simple case. The the Constitution says that. Congress can make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That clause applies to the states as well as to the Congress, that it is, it applies to all governments. And clearly, a Ten Commandments monument is essentially establishing religion in some ways, because the Ten Commandments is clearly a religious monument. Uh, that's what it is. It can't be anything else. Roy Moore tried to claim that it was a monument to American history because he said that the Ten Commandments was the moral foundation of American law. Uh, I was on the witness stand for five and a half hours explaining why that's utter nonsense. <laughs> uh, and and we won that case. Yeah, you prevailed, right. Thank goodness. Well, this has been great. I could we could go on. I know, and we're going to do it again at some point. And hopefully, you come back to campus. I know you will when when things get back to normal. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, good luck with your uh, all your work as president at Gratz, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. Take good care. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Stay safe. We'll do. Thanks, Paul. Bye bye. Bye bye. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. <laughs>